This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. We have a payment system and regulatory system that actually encourages consolidation. Um, not unintentionally, many people have the mistaken belief that somehow bigger is better, um, even though all of the research has shown that the primary result of consolidation has been to simply increase prices for healthcare um, and has done nothing to improve quality. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast. I'm your host, Dr. Fred Rosenberg. Providing healthcare in America has become an increasingly more difficult and challenging issue for the healthcare industry, the care providers, as well as the public and private sectors who are mostly responsible for covering the cost. Today, we are joined by one of the nation's leading experts in value-based payment. Harold Miller is president and CEO of the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform, a national policy center that facilitates improvements in healthcare payment and delivery systems. He also serves as adjunct professor of public policy and management at Carnegie Mellon University. Mr. Miller served four years as a member of PTAC, the Federal Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee, which was created to advise the Department of Health and Human Services on the creation of alternative payment models. Several years ago, I had the chance to hear him speak at the Partners in Value Conference hosted by the AGA and the Digestive Health Physicians Association. And I'm excited for our conversation today. Mr. Miller, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's nice to be here. Great. We always like to start by getting to know our guests. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to develop your interest in improving our healthcare delivery and payment models. Well, I started working on healthcare payment reform about 15 years ago when I realized that one of the biggest barriers to delivering safe, high quality healthcare is the current payment system. Hospitals and physicians actually get paid less when they deliver better healthcare, and in some cases, there are no payments at all for the services that would help patients the most. So I started the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform to find ways to change payments so physicians and hospitals would be paid adequately to deliver the services patients need safely and efficiently. 15 years ago, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement proclaimed the triple aim of healthcare, suggesting that changes in healthcare must simultaneously embrace three dimensions. First, improving the patient experience of care including quality and satisfaction, second, improving the overall population health, and third, reducing the per capita cost of health care. However, back then in 2008, as a country, we spent $2.4 trillion, which represented about 16% of our total GMP. Uh, in 2021, it had risen to 18.3% of GNP, and last year was 19.7%. Today, Wait times for office appointments and elective procedures are at historic highs. It seems that we are failing both in reducing the cost of health care as well as improving the patient experience of care. Why is this happening? Well, the triple aim is a great goal, but it doesn't explain how to get there. If you want to achieve a goal, you have to identify the barriers to achieving that goal, and then you have to remove those barriers. 
One of the most important barriers to improving quality and reducing costs, as I said earlier, is the way we pay for healthcare. But most physicians and hospitals are being paid today in basically the same way they have been paid for decades. Health insurance companies make bigger profits when healthcare spending increases. So why would they want to achieve the triple aim? So clearly we have to do something very differently than what we have been doing. Just thinking about the cost side of the equation, 10 years ago, value-based healthcare models and transitioning from fee-for-service were very much in vogue. Physicians and hospital systems attempted to realign themselves in anticipation of this shift. And that has played a role in the healthcare consolidation we're seeing today. Yet today, at least in gastroenterology, very few value-based programs have been implemented. Was this a flawed concept from the beginning? Well, unfortunately, most so-called experts claim that value-based payment meant creating penalties for physicians based on quality measures and putting physicians at financial risk for total healthcare spending. The quality measures have done very little to improve quality, and they have dramatically increased administrative burden for physicians, which means that physicians have had to spend far more time on administration and far less time on patient care. That's driving a lot of good physicians out of medicine, uh, and it's also making it more difficult for patients to see physicians. When you talk about waiting times, it's because there simply aren't enough physicians and they don't have enough time to see the patients who need them. Um, and no small physician practice can take risk for total healthcare spending. That's what insurance plans do. So these approaches to trying to shift risk to physicians has forced small practices to consolidate with big health systems, which again, makes it more difficult for patients to receive care. The sad thing is that a number of physicians and medical specialty societies have actually developed much better approaches to value-based payment, but Medicare and health insurance plans refuse to implement them. Medicare and other payers seems would rather find ways to shift all of their risk to healthcare providers, regardless of whether it actually hurts patients. Big health systems are complicit in this, unfortunately, because they know that small physician practices and hospitals can't manage the risk and administrative burden of capitation payment systems. So risk-based payments end up helping the big systems even get even bigger. At the expense of independent private practice. Yes, and that's one of the major reasons why many practices have gone out of business or sold because they can't manage all of these administrative systems themselves or manage risk. And so they say somebody else has to do that. And currently the hospital systems generally are reimbursed at a higher rate than the independent healthcare systems, at least from um, They are, and they also uh, can participate in programs like 340B that enables them to generate significant profits on uh, drugs. So we have a payment system and regulatory system that actually encourages consolidation, um, not unintentionally. Many people have the mistaken belief that somehow bigger is better, um, even though all of the research has shown that the primary result of consolidation has been to simply increase prices for healthcare um, and has done nothing to improve quality. Recently, you have suggested moving to a system of patient-centered payments as a mean of, means of supporting primary care. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Well, I recommend patient-centered payment, not just for primary care, but for specialists and even for hospitals. The basic concept is the same regardless of what kind of physician you are. The goal of patient-centered payment is to fix the real problems with fee-for-service payment. Many people have come to believe that fee-for-service payment is somehow inherently evil and needs to be completely abolished. The real problem is that there aren't any fees at all for many services that would be highly beneficial to patients. And the fees that do exist in many cases aren't enough to cover the cost of services. A perfect example of that is telehealth. Prior to the pandemic, a physician couldn't get paid for a video visit or a phone call with a patient, even if that was the best way to address a patient's problem. The only way the physician could be paid is if the patient came to the office for a visit. So the physician lost money if they resolved problems over the phone. That changed overnight three years ago when Medicare started paying fees for telehealth and telephone calls. The new fees enabled physicians to do what was best for the patient rather than what simply what the payment system paid for. So the idea of patient-centered payment is to simplify all this by saying that the physician should get paid for doing what the patient needs, for diagnosing an acute symptom, for managing a chronic condition, or for ensuring patients get appropriate preventive care, regardless of whether they do that through office visits or phone calls or nurse care managers. So there are still fees for services, but the services are defined around addressing a patient's need, not simply having a 15-minute office visit or a phone call. So, for example, if a, if a physician practices managing a patient's chronic condition, there would be a monthly payment for that service. The payment wouldn't be based on how many office visits the patient made, but on whether the, pa- the physician practice delivered evidence-based care for the patient's condition. Under the current system, if the physician can successfully manage a chronic condition care with fewer office visits, they get penalized financially because they're paid based on how many office visits they have. Under patient-centered payment, the physician would not be penalized. They would actually be rewarded for doing a better job of delivering care. Um, But the flip side of that is if they deliver less care, they still get the same monthly payment. Well, but they're also accountable. That's one of the key issues is the payment is also tied to accountability. The accountability is associated with delivering the evidence-based care that the patient needs. So it's not simply a matter of you're going to get paid even if you do nothing. The idea is that you have to follow evidence-based guidelines or deviate from them whenever it's appropriate in the individual patient circumstances. Um, But that's one of the problems with capitation systems is that they move so far away from fee-for-service that a physician gets paid basically for if they do nothing at all for the patient. What we need is something in the middle that says we're going to pay appropriately for what the patient needs and the physician would take accountability for delivering what the patient needs, not be at risk for how much drugs cost or how much hospitals charge, but be accountable for delivering what the patient needs. Have these payment plans been implemented uh, in places around the country? Um, unfortunately, in very few circumstances, in some, uh, it's been a matter of where there have been uh, payers that have been willing to pay in that uh, fashion. In fact, for example, for gastroenterologists, um, uh, one of the first payment models that act, that came to the physician-focused payment model technical advisory committee, PTAC, that I served on, was designed by a gastroenterologist at an independent practice in Chicago, Dr. Lawrence Kosinski. Uh, 
Um, and his model was designed to reduce hospitalizations for patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And the basic idea was to pay for that service, for managing the care of those patients to try to help make sure that they didn't have to go to the hospital. And he was able to do that successfully uh, with the Blue Cross plan um, uh, in Illinois. Unfortunately, Medicare has refused to implement it. Yeah, and I'm familiar with that program, and it, it actually demonstrated that um, they could reduce overall cost of care 10 to 15 percent for patients, and patients were highly satisfied with the um, availability of uh, being able to reach the physician. Absolutely, because there was a significant opportunity that was aligned with both, both better outcomes for the patients actually reduced overall spending. The problem was that the current payment system doesn't pay for the service that actually helps achieve that goal. And so if you pay for that and the physician practice implements that approach, you get a better result for the patients and lower spending for the payer. We've so far failed to meet our national goals for colorectal cancer screening. Can an effective colorectal cancer screening program be developed using value-based models? Well, if you take the example of the patient-centered payment system, rather than simply paying gastroenterologists for colonoscopies, they could be paid to help their patients successfully get appropriate colorectal cancer screening. The current approach is for PCPs to tell patients they should get a colonoscopy and hope that they do. Moreover, if they do schedule a colonoscopy, they get an instruction sheet about the bowel prep and we hope that they follow it. If they don't follow it, we tell them they need another colonoscopy and we hope that they schedule it. Many patients don't understand the importance of the colonoscopy. They have difficulty getting transportation or no one to accompany them, or they don't understand the prep instructions or the importance of following them. Nobody gets paid to help the patients overcome these barriers, but we pay a lot when the patients get colon cancer. So instead, I think we should pay physician practices to manage wellness and preventive care for patients. The risk of colon cancer could be treated just like a chronic condition. You'd pay for educating the patient about the need for screening, for helping the patient schedule screenings, and for helping them do the appropriate prep. You'd pay more for patients who are at higher risk, and you'd pay more for patients who face barriers to obtaining care. If you did that, then you would get more patients getting appropriate colorectal cancer screening. You'd get more successful colonoscopies, and you would undoubtedly reduce the incidence of colorectal cancer. So that's the problem with the current payment system, is we simply pay for colonoscopies. We don't actually pay for managing the risk of, of colon cancer. Several years ago, I think Horizon Blue Cross of New Jersey um, tried to implement a program along those lines where um, physicians were rewarded for doing a good job in, in screening their patients and getting them to have completed colonoscopies. I mean, Horizon is a good example of a, of a payer that rather than simply trying to uh, lay a bunch of quality measures or financial risk on the physicians, actually worked with the physicians to say, what is it that you could do differently that would achieve better results? And then what can we do to help you achieve that? That kind of payer-provider partnership is really um, critical to success. And the problem is we don't have that today. We simply have payers trying to shift financial risk to physician practices, regardless of what it means for the practice or for the patients. 
It's unfortunate that in today's world of instant communication, that kind of uh, experiment wasn't recognized and implemented by other payers around the country. Well, as I said earlier, the challenge is that it actually isn't in health plans' interest uh, to do things that will reduce healthcare spending because their profits are tied directly to the amount of healthcare spending. So when healthcare spending goes up, profits also go up. The other issue is that it, the vast majority of commercial insurance is really self-insured employers who are simply paying the health plan to process claims. So for the health plan to actually try to do something different and pay differently uh, and take on the expense of that is really there's no business case for the plan to do that. Um, so it's really a problem in terms of being able to get these payment systems implemented. Some payers have been uh, progressive and have really tried to do that, but most have not seen the benefit. You've written about developing a better path to value in cancer care. Gastroenterologists manage patients with chronic liver disease and chronic inflammatory bowel diseases, both of which are characterized by long-term care with expensive drugs and frequent expensive testing and procedures. Is there a better path to value for these types of illnesses? Well, one of the key elements, I think, of value-based care and payment is finding ways to improve outcomes for patients and also to reduce spending. And the only way to do both is to find ways to reduce avoidable spending, which is services that patients get that are unnecessarily, unnecessary in total or unnecessarily expensive. And there's two major categories of avoidable spending uh, for patients with cancer, and that also applies to patients with chronic conditions like inflammatory bowel disease. One category is when the patients are hospitalized for exacerbations of their condition or for complications of treatment that could have been prevented. That's what the payment model that Dr. Kaczynski developed was designed to address. And he and other physicians in other specialties have shown that if they can be paid appropriately to provide appropriate care management services to patients, patient outcomes are better and total spending is lower. The other category is use of drugs that are more expensive than necessary to achieve the same outcomes. Oftentimes, patients end up on expensive drugs because they haven't received appropriate support and assistance to make the less expensive approaches work. There's examples of physician practices also around the country that have been able to reduce the use of expensive biologic drugs significantly by providing more support to patients when they are first diagnosed with a condition so that they don't either fail on the initial drugs that they take or progress to a more serious condition. But the practice has to be paid appropriately to provide that support. Um, the savings from the less expensive drugs can offset that just the same way that the savings from reduced hospitalizations can reduce some of those services. Um, and then the patients are less likely to experience complications from the more expensive um, and dangerous drugs that they would be taking. So these are win-win-wins all around in the sense that the patient's getting better care, the payers are spending less, the physicians are actually able to deliver the kind of care that they want um, and be paid adequately to, to do that. So that's really what we should be trying to achieve rather than the current approach, which is a win-lose approach where payers try to find ways to increase their profits at the expense of patients and physicians. Uh, let's shift for a moment to the other side of problems that we're facing. 
One of the consequences of the pandemic has been to magnify the growing mismatch between patient demand for services and the medical community's ability to meet that demand in a timely fashion. Telehealth has been seen as one possible solution. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't think it makes any sense to force patients to come to a physician's office if their problem can be addressed appropriately with telehealth. On the other hand, when patients do need to be seen in the office, you don't want a system that only allows them to get a telehealth visit. You want a system that allows a patient's physician to deliver the right care at the right time rather than the current system where a physician practice can be financially penalized for doing that. So I think it's important to support telehealth services by physician practices. What concerns me is that some people seem to think that we don't have to worry about whether or not we have, uh, we can sustain independent private physician practices that we can simply say, well, we can have a telehealth center somewhere with somebody who will answer a call whenever a patient calls. Um, And many companies are trying to create these telehealth only structures and say, we'll deal with your your problems over the phone. But you know, whenever you need to see a physician, you'll have to find somebody to go see because we don't do that kind of service. So I think it's really important to find ways to support appropriate care for patients' needs rather than simply to say we want to focus on one particular way of delivering services. In the past, we've delivered services solely by office visits. We don't want a system that delivers services solely by telehealth. We want physicians to have the flexibility to do what their patients need at the time that they need it. Several uh, studies that have come out in the GI literature recently have suggested that, uh, first of all, patients and physicians overwhelmingly um, are uh, happy with telehealth, appreciate the convenience, and physicians um, generally feel that for patients with chronic problems, about 80% of the visits can be uh, managed over the phone uh, and 20% require a uh, office visit. So uh, I think opening up that uh, telehealth corridor um, might go a long way to um, Absolutely. Imp- but, but we have to recognize that that 80% is an average and that there are some patients who uh, really struggle with that uh, technology. They don't have the technology available or they have difficulty using it. Um, and that there are some patients who really do need to be seen in the office um, uh, and receive care that way. And again, I think that means that the system should provide the flexibility for the physician practice to do what makes the most sense for the patient rather than to have a structure that says, oh, we think we, you can do all of your visits through telehealth. We're only going to pay you based on that. There is this theory today that somehow delivering telehealth services is far less expensive for physician practices. And so we could just pay a lot less for telehealth rather than recognizing that in many cases, it requires as much or even more time for the physician to do that as to do something uh, in the office, um, uh, even if it's more convenient for the patient. Yeah. Some have, some have suggested that the triple aim be expanded to four or five goals, uh, in, including uh, pursuing health equity and improving provider satisfaction. Given all the issues we've discussed today, Do we have the bandwidth to address these as well? 
Well, the concept behind the triple aim was that it wasn't three separate goals that required three separate sets of activities. The idea was that there is a way to deliver healthcare that does all three of those things simultaneously. Uh, rather than choosing things that improve quality without regard to cost or things that reduce cost without regard to quality, et cetera. I think that most things that achieve the triple aim will also improve equity, reduce physician burnout, prevent closures of small practices and other important goals. So I don't think it hurts to articulate those additional goals. But going back to what I said earlier, earlier in, the, in our program, it doesn't do any good to add more goals unless we get serious about making the changes that are needed to achieve them. There's a lot of discussion, for example, today about equity in healthcare. Um, well, what are some of the problems with equity is that we don't provide adequate payment to be able to support customizing care for patients who need extra support. So we can go and measure equity. Uh, that doesn't do anything to tell us how to improve it. So I think we need to be much more serious about how to actually make the changes needed to improve goals rather than simply setting more goals and measuring them and then trying to penalize physicians whenever they're not achieved. What changes do you see being possibly implemented in the next five or 10 years? Well, I think that what will happen in the next five to 10 years depends on whether we continue to have a payer-driven healthcare system or a physician-driven system. I think physicians need to take back control of the healthcare system. The current generation of value-based payment systems are bad because they're being designed in a way that benefits payers, not patients, um, and it's physicians who understand what patients need. So I think physicians need to take responsibility for designing a payment system that will enable them to deliver higher quality care and control spending. And then they need to demand that payers implement it. Although inadequate payments for Medicare and health plans are a serious problem, and I think it's appropriate for physicians to be advocating for better payments, I think physicians also need to demand to be paid differently. And that requires physicians to identify what aspects of quality and spending they can control and take accountability for doing that. I think physicians have been victimized by a lot of these so-called value-based payment systems because they haven't taken a significant enough effort to design a better system. And so they simply get stuck with what payers develop. And I think that we're only going to see better systems if physicians take charge of that. That was one of the goals of the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee was Congress created that so that physicians would have a mechanism for um, uh, developing payment models and having them reviewed. And PTAC recommended 16 of those models, but Medicare has refused to implement any of them. I think physicians should be outraged by that that their colleagues spent enormous amounts of time and effort to be able to develop systems that would actually reduce spending for Medicare and improve quality for patients, but Medicare has refused to implement them. And that's what they should be complaining to Congress about is the need to fix them. Yeah. You know, with every election cycle, the, the chorus of people calling for national health or Medicare for all seems to get louder and louder. Do you see that as a potential outcome? 
Well, it doesn't do any good to have insurance if there is no one to deliver care for you, high quality care for you with that insurance. Uh, and so if we don't if we don't fix the way we pay for services, um, it doesn't matter whether there's a national insurance program or not. There's not going to be any physicians or small hospitals left uh, uh, to deliver it. So I think that many of the issues that people are concerned about um, with the current payment, with the current insurance system actually are more related to the way physicians and hospitals are being paid than the coverage. And it is a whole lot easier to expand coverage for people who don't have it if we can make the cost of care lower. So anything that we can do to be able to make healthcare less expensive is going to improve our ability to provide insurance for people who don't have it. So I think rather than simply focusing on getting getting more insurance or who's providing the insurance, we need to figure out how to actually change the payment, the methods that, that insurance plans use to pay for care. This has been a terrific uh, conversation, and I'm sure uh, many of our listeners would like to learn more about your work. Where can they um, find your material? Well, uh, the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform uh, website is uh, chqpr.org, and there is an entire website that's also devoted to the concept of patient-centered payment, which you can find at patientcenteredpayment.org. There's lots of uh, reports and materials there, all of which is free. I would encourage uh, people to uh, download it and read it. Um, There is material about uh, patient-centered payment for how to pay for uh, uh, a a patient-centered payment way for chronic conditions, for, uh, for primary care, um, how to sustain rural hospitals, which is a real problem that we have around the country. And I think I wish that more people would learn about these things and start pushing for implementation so that we can actually uh, preserve the system, the good parts of the system that we have before more of them are lost. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today and, and discussing a topic which is uh, vital for all of us and critical for all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.